So in the Plain Bible, Mark chapter 15 is on page 721. On the fancy one, it's on page 1023. And in the spirit of consistency, I too have left my name tag in the glove box of the car. <laughs> I'll try and remember it next week, we'll see. <laughs> so Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 21. This is titled, The Crucifixion. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him, and the written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those listening, some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, He's called Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to him to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. Thank you. Um, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your people that meet together. And we pray, Lord, that this morning as we meet together that uh, you are glorified. That, Lord, you would speak confidently through me. Through You would speak the words that will help us as your people live out the lives that you've called each of us to. And we just thank you, Lord, for uh, the faithfulness of the people here. And we pray, Lord, we would always remain faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's quite a um, live microphone, isn't it? You have to be careful. I can't fiddle too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, you've got your tambourine. I've got this. Um, look, it's, when, when Scott rang me and asked me if I'd uh, be happy to preach uh, down here, 
I must admit, I was very much in two minds about that. I haven't preached since, I think, before COVID. I've never preached at our own church. I've preached at a number of other churches around the place. I've done, I don't know how many kids' talks over the last few years. But um, it, it does, yes, it does worry me because dealing with God's word um, responsibly, responsibly and appropriately is a real privilege. Uh, and I do, I do hope that uh, I do that this morning. Now, when I found out also that we were, you were going through a series on Mark, I was happy to fit in with the sermon series this time. The one in December, because I know things are going to be hectic at the end of the term. Scott very generously allowed me to preach on whatever I'd like to preach on then, so I'll be pulling out one of my older sermons. Um, but when I found out it was the book of Mark, I, not that we should have favourite books of the Bible, but I have to say Mark is my favourite gospel. And it's because... And, I'm hopeless at remembering things, uh, and I don't do it well, but there is one thing I remembered from Bible college, and that was the, the phrase, kai euthos. Does anyone know what that means? Don't you put your hand, because I know you'll know Greek as well as tambourine and clicker. And... <laughs> Does anyone know what kai euthos is? Okay. And immediately. And the phrase kai euthos is right throughout the book of Mark, and it's like... The book of Mark is written as a screenplay. It's like action, 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 action. It's like Mark um, is like the Matthew Riley of the gospel writers. Sorry, that's putting down the gospels, of course. But, but it's that immediate action, that feeling of things moving at great pace with great plan. Uh, and that's a really encouraging thing. I find it because I'm a bearer of small brain. I don't concentrate. Just ask my wife um, and the rest of our book club and how many books that I finally actually finished reading before book club meets. Um, I don't focus and concentrate too well with that. But one again, one book that I did enjoy reading was, um, have a guess given the title on the notes there. What do you think one of my favourite books might have been? God, Jesus, the Bible. They have three main answers, but no, the Hobbit. Someone's already said it. An unexpected tale. And I have to say, I see that right through the book of Mark. It's in many ways an unexpected tale, particularly this part of the book of Mark. It goes in a very dark direction, it seems. Given, you know, the beginning of Mark talks about, talking about um, Jesus the Messiah. And going, oh, that's really good. So the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah in many ways, the great white knight on the great white horse galloping in to save the people of Israel. But it's actually a very unexpected way that this story goes in the end. Um, speaking of unexpected ways, your father made a comment about Toblerone. <laughs> He's not here. Again, and I, I was going to correct him anyway because I've listened to his sermon and um, he did say that he never gets a square of Toblerone. And you know what? He doesn't... Just, they're not square! <laughs> Would you like this? Because, you know, he misses out. Feel free to open it up and share it amongst the group there, but don't get... Thanks very much, Tony. You are welcome. <laughs> Is he going to open it? No, he's not. Go on. Open it up. Open it up. Um, yes, so it's become the expected thing that Peter doesn't get any Toblerone. Um, 
You're going to share it? Oh, I have a piece, thank you. It's a carrot. <laughs> it's in the shape of Toblerone, isn't that good? That is so good. <laughs> Feel free to wear it. I don't want it now. <laughs> I ate too much carrot the other night when I was carving them. <laughs> Unexpected. You're expecting some nice chocolate. You're going to share it around. You're even going to put it off for a little bit because like that expectation, all that sort of thing. I apologise if I spit any um, <laughs> carrot everywhere. So unexpected outcomes, unexpected things happening. Now, the first thing we've, we find in verse 21... A particular a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. I don't think Simon was expecting to come across this scene when he was making that journey back into Jerusalem. But this is what happened. He was forced by the, the Roman soldiers because Jesus was unable to carry the cross himself. And the really interesting thing is that well, I don't think anything's wasted in God's economy. That God put Simon there at that particular time. I mean, the fact that he's referred to by name, both of his sons are mentioned, Rufus and Alexander. There is a Rufus and Alexander that are mentioned later in the Gospels. But um, we don't know particularly. But there was obviously a connection. There was a plan in behind that. God knew what was going to happen. That that was going to say something special to the disciples, to the Christians. Thank you very much. That's a good idea. Wash those um, bits of caravan. <laughs> to those at home. <laughs> Nothing is wasted. And the other thing is, it's alluding to that whole idea of picking up your cross. Simon picked up Jesus' cross in a very physical manifestation of what God has called us to. So, straight up, there's nothing wasted. There is starting to be a plan in all of this. Despite the fact that the outcomes or the things that we were expecting to happen, um, if we were the people of Israel, the Jewish people, things weren't going to plan. Verses 22 to 26. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with, mixed with, I'm mixing my myrrh, sorry, mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour. I like this idea that, well, the third hour is actually nine o'clock in the morning, so they say. I don't like the idea of living back in those days because getting up at six o'clock in the morning does not suit me too much at all. But remembering it was 6 o'clock, he was on trial. 9 o'clock, when they crucified him. There was a written notice of a charge against him, which read, King of the Jews. Showing again what a meaningless travesty it was that Jesus was sent to the cross. If that was the charge that they could get him on. The King of the Jews. And then they crucified two rebels with him. One on his right and one on his left. 
So Golgotha, place of the skull. Just like Calvary, which it is in the Latin translation. So there seems to be various reasons for the naming of this. Possibly it was the shape of the hill. But quite possibly it was also because that's where traditionally beheadings were made. Uh, and remembering that though the Jews gave Jesus a cross to the Roman rulers, they weren't allowed to sentence people to death because they were a, um, had been taken over by Rome. Uh, but they were complicit, obviously, in it. And it says something that, they would, that Jesus was taken to where they used to do their punishments. Used to be beheadings and all sorts of things for those that didn't fit in um, with what they thought should be right. And again, there's, we're starting to see here a fulfilment of prophecy. We look back to Isaiah 53. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, going down to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? There was an inspired choice of music, of uh, song before. That whole connection that we need to make with the gravity of what was going on here and the complicit nature of particularly the people of Israel, but everyone that was around in what was happening. It's quite scary and we need to own that um, and to imagine that's how it was at that particular time. Further down in verse 11, and after, um, there it, it points to the hope. I did like you did, left out the last verse um, of that one because we're going to see that next week. But it talks about there is a sense of promise after that. Psalm 22, another one. And I know I'm not teaching you anything new. You guys have been sitting here under good teaching and preaching for many, many years. This is not new, but I want to invite you into engaging with this text and the immediacy, the, the horror that is described here and how we are a part of that. Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my coes among them and cast lots for my garments. There is no mistake. These words were written many, many years before. God is working out a plan, though people couldn't see it. As Peter said to you last week, it's like not being able to see something that is right in front of you, but it is there. So God is actually working, though this is an unexpected journey. 
in many ways. It was so unexpected that people couldn't see the truth of what they'd been told for many years through their scriptures. Now, just a quick aside about verse 28. Um, you notice there's a number there, but no verse. But apparently in some manuscripts, uh, words akin to uh, Luke 22, uh, verse 37, is in some of those copies of the manuscripts. And all it's saying it is, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you this, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. That was my only way of getting across to another one of the Gospels that described very clearly what was happening at that time. So going back to the passage, verse 29, the onlookers. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Come down from your cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. <laughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I will leave it until an Easter sermon for you to explore that a little bit further and the responses, particularly of the thieves on either side of Jesus. So, fury or fear? And it's an interesting thing to think about what was that gut response from people? Was it this anger? I think from the chief priests, it was an anger because he was threatening their very existence. He was threatening their reason for being, their whole um, role in that society. But I think there was also an element of fear. Those people that may have been with him that were thinking, oh, it's going to go, it's going to go, it's going to be so good. And, and then suddenly, bang, bang, he's up there on a cross. But again, it's continued prophecy fulfilled. That he'd be ridiculed, he'd be mocked, that he'd be insulted by the people of the day. The death of Jesus, verses, from verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when those standing near, here, near him heard this, they said, listen, He's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Again, back to Psalm 22. The first words in that psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Intriguingly, the death only took about six hours which is a little bit unusual, but apparently not unheard of. Given what Jesus had been through in the beating, in the abuse that he'd suffered, it is not that surprising. And I suppose, I don't know how God works these things, but the tradition is that the soldiers that are on guard aren't allowed to leave until the person who has been crucified dies. So for this to happen in a period of six hours... Uh, I think is just another way that God has worked this story, this event, so that it might have 
the most appropriate impact. Of course, that's true anyway, whichever way it would have gone. But it's fascinating that this is how, it's, how, it, work, how it worked. The other thing is that they usually do to hurry up the death is to break the legs of the person that's on the cross. When we look back to Exodus chapter 12, and it talks about the Passover meal and how that's supposed to be um, put together. And one of the key things in it is that the body of the lamb that has been sacrificed is not to have its bones broken. And here, of course, we're seeing the lamb of God sacrificed for us. No bones broken. But there are some that are still hoping. But they're hoping in the wrong thing. They're hoping that Elijah is going to come and save him. Not thinking through how it actually was going to work in reality. Back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, to make it fair to these people that are watching, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So they're expecting Elijah himself, but not understanding that Jesus was coming as in a, sort of a personification of, of Elijah. He was coming to die for us. But they said, sorry, but they could only see it from one perspective, as Peter was saying last week. They could see it through what they thought and knew, but couldn't put the pieces together and see what God was doing there. The aftermath. Verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were always there. Of course, speaking about this passage, we cannot um, neglect talking about the curtain. The curtain in the temple. The practice of the people of Israel was that they had... Um, their temple, it was very carefully set out. There was a holy place and there was the Holy of Holies. That place was covered by a curtain, 60 foot tall, 30 foot wide. There is argument about how thick this curtain was. Um, can't really figure out exactly how thick it was, but it was a substantial curtain. And it was designed to separate that Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the, the priest would only go in there once a year to sprinkle blood from the sacrifice onto the ark. But that curtain, that symbol of separation of God from his people, was torn. And not from the bottom, not that I'm thinking you could tear this particular sort of curtain, because they're saying it could have been up, up to four inches thick, the way that it was, it was made. We look at um, uh, Jewish texts like the Mishnah, and it talks about how that curtain should be made. Massive curtain, but torn from the top to the bottom. From God is the only one that could have done that. So symbolising, of course, that separation of God from his people because of Jesus. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... 
by our new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. It's very clear, isn't it? I mean, we do have the benefit of hindsight, of course. But one that may not have had the benefit of hindsight, but he was operating with what was here and now, was the Roman soldier. He had watched everything that had gone on. He made the connection. So maybe there is actually an an advantage in not having a previous assumption. He could see that this man was the son of God. So that's the journey thus far. What reflections should we be able to make on that? First thing is, I would put it to you, it was different, but better. Just like carrots are better for you than chocolate. Different, but better. I know it's a disappointing thing when it's not chocolate. (laughs) But that is what's happened in this situation. It's different, but it's better. It is the only answer. It's not quite, as I said, in that same league as the carrot instead of chocolate, but it's also, it's not the great white knight on the great white horse, as I said earlier. Sorry to Bilbo and Gandalf, who was, in their sense, their great white knight. But as we should have seen in the prophecies that we see in the account, and as we see, as we know in hindsight, that God has done his best work here. We do have that advantage of seeing it in hindsight. We have that advantage of having the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can see how God has worked. This was a necessary part of the journey. But we need to engage in that. We can't just treat it as a cerebral exercise. It's got to be here. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Do we tremble when we think of that? And this is the only answer. This is the only way that God could bring people back into relationship with him. It was the only way. It had been foreordained right from the beginning of time. We look in Genesis. We look in books right through the Old Testament. This was the way it was going to happen. What for Jesus was the tree of death becomes for us the tree of life. It was unexpected, but it was needed. Psalm 22. So I'm going to push towards something positive that's going to happen that we'll be hearing about next week. But Psalm 22. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth, will, sorry, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Let's finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your word, for its cohesiveness, the way that it shows the human condition. It shows your glory. It shows the way that you have planned for us to be in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you 
for what Jesus went through. As a horrible an event as that was, it was the only way that we could be in relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for that from the bottom of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we step out this week to live the lives that you've given each of us, that you would help us to reflect on what you have done for us, the gravity of that, on the depth of your love for us shown in the cross. And as we do that, Lord, that we would be one for forever grateful, but Lord, happy to serve you in whatever way that could be. For Lord, your son served us by going through what he went through. And we thank you for that. Please bless this church. Keep us all safe in you and help us, Lord, to live lives that pay honour to what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.